Well, as you probably know, we're studying our way through the book of Hebrews, and last week we came upon this text that's sort of a classic, difficult text. And uh, so we started into this last time. Uh, In this text, something is impossible. Something is described as impossible. It says it's impossible to restore to repentance those who, and then it describes a group of people. That is quite an amazing statement. That there might be a group of people that are beyond repentance. That is quite a thing to say. This is intended to get our attention. It's part of a warning. And uh, the warning might go something like this. Don't let yourself be found in this group of people. Really, what the encouragement of the warning is, is at the beginning, it's before you get to the hard part. And it's the, the, the thing we're being encouraged to do here is to carry on in the gospel, to move forward in Christ. The way it's stated here in, in the beginning of the chapter, uh, let us move beyond the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, you could say, in the doctrine of Christ. The way it's stated in the original languages, move forward from the beginning, continue into the fullness of the word of Christ. This is not, as we've noticed several times now, this is not an uh, encouragement to move beyond the gospel in Christian living which is often what we think we are doing. We have a very strong tendency in the modern evangelical church to think that the gospel is the way you get saved, but the way you walk in Christ is something else. Some principles of Christian living or some such thing. But the scripture does not teach that. I would refer you also to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, where it says, in the same way that you received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and established in faith. So trusting in the gospel is always the mode of the Christian life. Always, always. You don't graduate from the basic foundation of receiving the grace of God by faith in Christ. You just go deeper in it. You go further in it. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You you practice living by faith in Christ. You think like this. Well, if the gospel is true, and I believe it is, then 
what would it call for in this situation in my life? If, for example, if I'm free in Christ, for real, from the penalty of sin, and from death in a very real way, how does it change how I might relate to my family? If I have received the liberating love of Jesus so that my needs are entirely met by that love, how then should I respond to my spouse or my children or my parents or my teachers or my friends or society? Or how, how would that change my politics? Or how would that lead me to behave in this or that decision that I have to make in this life. I actually have great liberty in Christ to be generous and loving. And so when I know the love of Christ, I become the love of Christ to someone else. It's in this way, I keep on the scripture in here in Hebrews, describes this as, by practice, they've developed the skill of discerning between what's good and what's bad, what's beneficial and what's harmful. They know how to live wisely because they are informed in their day-to-day living by the grace of God in Christ. That is so different from let's read this text of scripture and list out the six principles of good fatherhood. Now that's a perfectly okay thing to do as long as you remember where it comes from. As long as the power is the love of God in Christ. You see that? So I didn't really mean to preach about that, but, you know, that happens sometimes. I accidentally preach on things. It happens to all preachers. So all of that is the warning. The, warn- the, the encouragement here is, look, you need to move forward in God's grace in life. So he says, gives a reason. It's like a reason for that exhortation. It's impossible to renew to repentance those who, and we looked at this a little bit last week, who? Who are these impossible people? Well, they've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become sharers in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. Yet, in spite of all that, they've fallen away. This is talking about a Christian without Christ. This is talking about a churchgoer who hasn't actually encountered Christ in a real way. It looks real. You know, Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the weeds. You know this story? So there's the, the farmer planted a field, 
and then his enemy came and planted a bunch of weeds in his field. And when it grew, all the weeds and the wheat grew up at the same time. So the field is full of weeds and wheat. And so the worker said, should we go try to get all the weeds? He said, no, you might get some of the wheat at the same time, so wait. And at harvest time, we'll sort everything out. Now, I think that's a bit weird if you're a farmer. Like, I'm not sure the farmers would just let the weeds be until, the, until harvest time. I don't know, I'm not a farmer. But uh, in the gospel, that's the situation. And so in the church, in the community, the covenantal community of Christ, it is conceivable that there are people who don't actually know Christ, though they might look just like the rest of us. They, we might, they might profess faith. Well, so we, we need to think about <clears throat> what it means to fall away. Now, the word fall away, in English at least, sounds like an accident. Oops, they fell away. Or uh, neglect. We're charging ahead and they fell behind. But the, the tense of this word doesn't really allow for an accident. This is a deliberate and decisive act on someone's part. They didn't just one day, oops, they you know, fell off the cart. They decided. This is someone who has come into the church, maybe looking for answers in life, and they've participated and they've even come to profess faith in Christ, but then at some point they figure out, this is not, I don't buy it. This is what we talked about last time, somebody who departed from Christ, somebody who says, no, not true. At one point they professed to believe in Christ, and now what they would say is, belief in Christ is not of any value. They're literally denying salvation as a possible category. This is why I was so confused by this guy, this video I told you about last week, where the, this guy was talking about how he used to be a Christian, and for some reason it was very important that we all understood that he was really a Christian when he's come now to the point of denying that there's no such thing as a real Christian. I think, why does it matter to say that you were really a Christian if now you're saying being a Christian is meaningless? That guy is in this category, I think. He, I don't see any possible way that he understood Christ the way I do as my only possible hope of standing before God when judgment is due. Like Peter, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I, Jesus is looking at him saying, well, are you leaving too? And Peter says, to go where? I don't have any other hope other than Christ. 
And he's my hope of salvation from the penalty of my own sin. And God cannot call himself good if he doesn't punish me. And so he punished me in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm relying on that. Ah, Coming to a point of the denial of that seems impossible to me. Well, uh, my point is simple, that in this falling away, this is a decisive act. This is someone saying, coming to the conclusion, determining for themselves that Christ isn't real, that the salvation provided by God in Christ is not actually a thing. This is not simple backsliding, you know, Have you done any simple backsliding? (laughs) I have. I have. I would regard most of my teen years as simple backsliding. I knew Jesus was real, but I wasn't really that interested and wasn't paying much attention. But if you ask me what was my hope of eternal salvation, I'd say there's only one. And thank God for the grace of God in Christ. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who's come to deny Christ. We're talking about Israel at the gate of the promised land, which we've been reminded of here in the book of Hebrews, and this is important in the context. We're talking about the people of God being led by God. God's brought them out of Egypt. They come right up to the boundary of the promised land and they say no. They say no decisively. Jacob, I'm sorry, Joshua and Caleb argue with them and say, but God said he would do it. And they said no. That's the analog of this falling away. The one spot where the word falling is used in the book of Hebrews is in chapter 4 and verse 11, where the people who rejected the promised land fell in the wilderness. This is an intentional departure from the life and the fellowship of the church. If we think about it in the historical context of the book of Hebrews itself, What we're talking about is a group of Christians, a church, probably Jewish believers in the city of Rome who are facing the possibility of real persecution, which they've experienced before. And now it's coming back. And they're saying, maybe that's enough of this Jesus. Maybe we just go back to synagogue. Well, to do that, would involve rejecting their own baptism in Christ. To do that, they would, to depart from the church and go back to the synagogue, 
they would have to deny Christ officially. That's kind of what we're talking about here. They would have to recant their own professions of faith in Christ. They would have to say something like this, my baptism was phony because Jesus is not the Savior. I regret having joined the community of Christ. And I would now like to rejoin the community of Israel. Now, this is the group of people we're talking about. And in the modern application, we're talking about people who have been full-on participants in the community of Christ, but somehow have come to deny the reality of God's grace in Christ. My own view is, if someone can deny the reality of God's grace in Christ, they never really got it. Now, I think there's some other categories we could consider here, like someone who is, for the time being, sort of, well, I'm going to come back to that. So, the scripture here says that it's impossible to renew them to repentance, and then it gives a reason. It says, since they are crucifying again for themselves the Son of God, putting him to open shame. Now, I think the point of this is simple. It's like this. You can't deny the redemption of the cross and, man, and maintain the goodness of Jesus Christ. Or of God. You might re remember a few weeks ago, I don't remember how long ago exactly, I asked this question, what makes you think God is good? What makes you think God is good? In my opinion, there is only one, only one adequate answer to that question. There are other answers, but there's only one that's really adequate, that makes it decisively true that God is good, and that is the cross of Christ. The fact that God himself joined us in the suffering of our sin and death and has made a way to bring us back from it, only that is a decisive case for God is good. If you look around in the world, if you just judge the, the depth of human suffering in the world or the magnitude of our own capacity for evil, how can you maintain that God is good? Well, by the cross, by the cross, and only by the cross. And so I believe you can't deny the salvation provided for in the cross and keep saying God is good. And this is often what happens. People become atheists. When they've dealt with the with Christ in some way, and then refused Christ. 
They're not neutral on Jesus anymore. And they would regard the Christian faith, generally speaking, as not good. A person who denies the justifying power of the cross is in this way taking the side of the crucifier. That's what Hebrews is talking about when he says they crucify again for themselves. This is heavy weight. The cross is the only way God can be just and forgiving. If there's no cross, for him to remain righteous requires that he judge all sin, even in the slightest. He can't keep on saying, I'm good, and let us get away with evil. So how does he manage this problem? The cross of Jesus Christ. And so when I reject Christ, I reject all of the goodness of God. And I, it's, I'm in effect, I'm crucifying Christ again. If Christ crucified, this is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ crucified is the power of God to salvation. How does God get from sinners to salvation? The power of God is Christ crucified. And if it's not that, then it's scandalous to the Jews a stumbling block or crazy to the Greeks foolishness. To reject Christ as Savior is to scorn Christ altogether. There's no good Jesus that didn't die for your sins. That option is just kind of removed from the realm of possibilities in the scripture. This is a big thing to say. And the writer of Hebrews is, is bringing us to this, well, to Jesus' question, are you leaving too? <laughs> are you leaving too? That's kind of the question at the heart of this text. How about you guys? So, because, you know, that conversation Jesus had with Peter, people, Jesus said some hard-to-take stuff, like you got to eat my body and drink my blood or forget it. <laughs> people are like, the guy's crazy. And they left. And so he looked at the disciples and he says, how about you guys, you leaving too? And that's when Peter said, Go where? You have the words of eternal life. And so the writer of Hebrews is bringing the church together 
around this question, are you leaving to? My answer is, go where? Go where? I got nothing else. If I'm going to stand before God one day, I can't bring anything. I can't come before God and say, you know, I wasn't that bad of a guy. Plenty of guys worse than me. I was a pastor. <laughs> Surely you appreciate that. And all of us can look around the world and go, yeah, that guy, worse than me. I wonder who the worst guy is. Man, I hate to even think about what that person would be like. But, you know, I'm closer to him than I am to Jesus on the righteousness scale. And so God can't keep on going around claiming how good he is if he lets me off the hook, except that he didn't let me off the hook. My sins are punished on the cross of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, I died in union with Christ when he died. And I am raised in union with Christ when he is raised. And I will be raised one day completely in Christ. And so I can be restored and God can still be good. I have to come to this question because this says it's impossible to restore people to repentance if they've made this decisive decision. And so I have to ask this question, is this passage advising us to give up on some set of people as beyond redemption? Well, I don't think so. And I'm going to explain to you why I don't think so. First of all, I'm not capable, capable, my own perception is not adequate, I'm not capable of determining whether someone is genuinely in this category or not. Because there are other categories that look like this. I've known Christians who went through a phase and of course, if someone is born again in Christ, they're born again in Christ because God got a hold of them, not because they got a hold of anything. And God does not let go. But God does allow us to pass through periods of doubt, sin, trouble, distress, where we kind of lose it. There's a lost sheep. What happens to the lost sheep? The good shepherd finds it and brings it back. So, how do I know about any one person? I don't. And so, I will pray. I don't care how much you deny Jesus. I will pray. The second thing I want to say is, 
the language here gives us an opening. <laughs> gives us an opening. Not to... That impossible is not necessarily permanent. Let me see if I can explain this. Because it's in the word since. Since they crucify again Christ. Or another way you could translate this is while they are crucifying Christ again to themselves. Or so long as they crucify again to themselves Christ. In other words, you can't renew someone to repentance who is refusing to repent. Because the only path of real repentance is the cross of Christ. The only way for a person to come to God is in Christ. And so as long as I'm denying Christ, I'm impossible. Here's the thing. Every one of us is impossible. Because this is the condition in which we begin. Denying Christ, requiring the crucifixion of Christ. This is the place where we all started. I could say this about myself and about any real born-again person. Before they came to faith in Christ, faith in Christ was impossible. Faith in Christ is not something we generate from ourselves. It's something given to us by the Spirit of God who opens our eyes, who heals our blindness to see the truth of God's grace in Christ. And if God does not act, we do not get it. So, the scripture here says, as long as someone is denying Christ, if someone has decisively turned away from the gospel, there's only one way back, and that is for them to quit denying Christ. And there's only one way that will happen, and that is the miracle of the work of the God, the Holy Spirit, in the soul and heart and mind of that person to see Christ for who he is. So, pray. Don't quit. I can't look at anyone and say, oh, they must be past Christ. Because if they are, I am. Then, I would say this. No, so no, because I can't tell the difference between someone who's in a phase of their Christian dowdiness or someone who's really decisively turned away. I can't tell. So I'm not going to quit on them. I'm going to keep on talking, praying. Uh, and then, because the language here gives us this reason to think, well, impossible, maybe not is a permanent, maybe is not a permanent condition. And then, no, because there's a warning here. <laughs> and the warning implies the possibility of recovery. Or the whole passage is kind of pointless. So, again, I say, no. This isn't putting people in the realm of quit, worrying about whether they repent of quit. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews is kind of aimed at this. Hey, church, pay attention to each other so that we make sure it's real. Try to make sure it's real. 
Look around. Care for each other. Preach the gospel. Pray for each other. Well, I do have one yes in my question. Is this passage advising us to keep give up on some people as beyond redemption? And this actually isn't from the passage. This is just kind of a my own opinion, at, you know, and maybe to lighten this a little bit. Yes, people who are dead. If someone has died, I don't recommend going to their graveside and preaching the gospel to them. That was supposed to be kind of funny, and somehow I had lost track of that. I would say this, Jesus said to the disciples, you know, it's hard, it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Some people want to justify this by talking about some gate that you could push a camel through if you really wanted to. That's not the point. He's saying it's impossible. And the disciples say, well then, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus did not respond to that by saying, well, you're not all rich. That's not what he said. He didn't actually argue the point of, I mean, they were making this argument, well, if rich people can't get in, then nobody can. And he doesn't say, well, that's incorrect. Correct. Nobody can. This is what he says. What's impossible for man is possible with God. If God doesn't save us, we're lost. So, I would say this. Don't quit on anyone with the gospel. Don't quit on anyone. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. Beg God on behalf of people. In praying, you are positioning yourself with Christ. Now, this text closes with this, this illustration. Closes. This message closes with this illustration. We read this. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. This is the illustration. There's a piece of land right over here. Now, a very kind-hearted person came and trimmed all the weeds here in the church property. Cut the grass down. You can see how far they got. And then there's another piece of land over there, or back there, not cultivated. 
Some of you here in Bonaire, no doubt, you live on a piece of ground. You have your house is on a piece of ground. You take very good care of that piece of ground. And right next door is a piece of ground that no one is taking care of. That's this illustration. What happens when nobody takes care of the piece of ground? It produces thorns and weeds. It's in its natural condition. I, you could turn around and look. Right, right over there, there's one piece of ground. Nobody's really watching after it. Nothing but thorns and weeds. Oh, and there's some frogs that come out if it rains. Natural. It's in its natural condition. Both pieces of ground get the same rain. So how much they receive the rain is not the difference. The difference is one piece of ground is being cultivated and one piece of ground isn't. Some ground is tilled and brings forth. And the word bring forth here is actually the word you'd use for giving birth. It gives birth to vegetation that satisfies the cultivator. <laughs> Some ground is wild and produces. Different word. Very interesting to me. He doesn't say one piece of ground gives birth to good stuff and one gives birth to... No. It just carries on with what it carries on with. It's just continuing in its natural state. It produces, it continues to produce. The word here is carries out. It carries out the natural consequence, thorns and thistles, cursed, burned in the end. This is ground in its natural condition. I, the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is because this helps us understand the, the warning text about this person who's, uh, in, by all appearances, a Christian and then falls away. The person who is enlightened and tasted the heavenly, that's the rain. The rain is the enlightening, the tasting, the sharing, the sharing in the word, sharing in the spirit, sharing in the fellowship of believers, having heard God speak in his son by the spirit through participation in the fellowship of the church. That's the ground receiving the rain. Some respond in faith and some don't. That's the thing that's being described here. I would say this, so the one last question, what's the useful vegetation? It's the persevering life of faith. Just like those Israelites could have just kept walking into the promised land. How do, we, how do you know about yourself? Well, you come in here on today and I say to you, so, are you leaving? 
How do you answer that question? Will you leave Christ? It's simple. Real faith continues. Real faith continues. That doesn't mean it doesn't have times of doubt. It doesn't mean it doesn't go through periods where, man, I'm not sure about this at all. But it continues. In the end, here's how I deal with it. If something, typically my own badness, makes me wonder whether I'm real as a Christian or not. Do you ever wonder that? Because I do. I wonder that a lot. Here's how I deal with it. Did Jesus die for my sins? Mine. Yeah. Yes. Historical fact. Yes, in fact, he did. Am I looking to any other explanation for my standing before a righteous God? I got nowhere else. I've only got that. So when the devil accuses me, he doesn't have to lie to call me a sinner. Jesus died for sinners, so hallelujah. If I'm not a sinner, Jesus didn't die for me. If I'm worried about how bad of a sinner I am, still after all these years of being a Christian, I should have improved. Yeah, I should have. Uh, I should be better by now. Yeah, I should have. You're not real. I think, well, Jesus is real. I only have the one place to turn, so I will turn there again. And again, and again. So if you're a Christian and you've got, you're passing through some deep water, I just say to you, Christ, this table, it's all just about Christ. I don't have anything else to give you. Jesus Christ died for your sins. You rely on that. You're like that thief on the cross who shows up in heaven and just says, he said I could come. I don't have any other explanation. I don't have any other excuse than Jesus claims me. And that is the useful vegetation. That persevering trust in Christ. Now, some of you know people who look like they're in the impossible group. And this is hard for you to hear, and I know it. This warning, this text, is hard to hear. When you know somebody, when you care about somebody who's in this denying group of people, and I want to encourage you, keep praying. Keep praying. Your hope is in Christ. That's real. Keep praying.
Father, we do pray for people to turn away. Lord, I pray for the church, for this church in particular, but for the church everywhere, that we would be encouraging about the goodness of God in Christ. That we would be preachers of the good news. That there's a release from slavery to sin that comes from the cross. Lord, as we gather around the communion table this morning, it's so simple, Father. We receive Christ. It's in these symbols that we eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. We receive your grace poured out on us at the cross. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.